welcome to Recovery Machine. I'm Nathan, and this is my co-host, Corey. Hey, Nathan. Today, we're on episode four, where we discuss personality traits that we found have made us more vulnerable, I guess you could say, Corey, to uh, falling prey to addiction. Um, We're going to go through and look at some of the... uh, different personality traits that contribute to substance abuse disorder and uh, try to pick apart some of this stuff as we go, because there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of kind of myths, I guess, surrounding this, this topic and uh, lots to discuss. So lots to discuss. Yeah. So I guess we'll start with, uh, with what traits we've kind of run across in our, journey of recovery that have been important to understand not only to uh to kind of be aware of what's the way that your that our minds work in regard to substance use and kind of the things that uh set us up for potential pitfalls or traps that uh that kind of increase your your risk as you go along so they're kind of important parts of our personalities that have to be addressed and monitored um what kind of stuff i know you talked about this a little bit before Corey. um in our last meeting there um can you tell us a little bit about some of the the personality traits that you think contributed to not only developing uh an addiction but uh that have made you kind of aware of uh where you might run into trouble yeah absolutely so I, I've talked about a few of these traits in, in our previous episodes as well. Um, so, but, but some of them bear, bear some repeating. Um, the first one I'll, I'll mention for myself is, is sensitivity. And um, I think one of the themes that we're going to recognize that within this discussion is that there are a lot of terms that get thrown around about personality traits and, and traits of, of those who are addicted. Um, that they're often either misused or misunderstood terms. So sensitivity for me, uh, growing up, I always thought that that meant that I, you know, that I was soft or that I cried easily or that I took things personally, but, but it more accurately uh, means for me that it, that I take on the pain of others. And um, within the context of a healthcare setting, that means, that means a big burden uh, and a and a huge risk of cumulative um, pain that I'm experiencing from other people and that can can be painful for myself. Right. So that would be one. Um, we've we've talked about perfectionism as well, and um, perfectionism, as we said in in I think both of our introductory episodes, is is uh, more accurately the the feeling that you're not enough and that the more we take on, uh, it doesn't really matter because it will never be enough. That's right. Yep. So an interesting theme with both of those things for me is, is negative self-talk and the story that I tell myself, the narrative voice that is uh, sometimes accompanying my other thoughts. And sometimes it's uh, much more powerful than that. And it's a guiding thought. Um, that is telling me negative things about myself or negative things about my experience or what, what could happen. 
yeah, in a, any given scenario. Like what kind of, uh, what would be an example of a negative thought that you'd have while you were working? Oh, it, it could be that something bad is going to happen that, that we are myself and my coworkers are going to be in a compromised position, uh, that we're not safe. Now, sometimes some of these things are, are, are true or they were confirmed with, uh, with experience. Um, but because, just because they happened in past experiences doesn't necessarily mean that they'll happen again. But in the story that I was telling myself, they were going to happen again for sure. Okay. And I couldn't convince myself otherwise. So uh, an almost unrealistic uh, emphasis on negative events or catastrophizing things that uh, haven't occurred, although they have a chance of occurring, but you're putting too much weight on them, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, um, you know, not only that, but then I think, I think that that also contributed to, um, you know, being on, being on edge and a, a level of anxiety. And um, I don't know that I could parse how much of the anxiety existed without the self-talk, but it was certainly that state of anxiety. Um, the, the, the rumbling beehive that we've spoken of was fed by that self-talk and, and egged on by it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. Yeah. I, I'm, we're similar in a lot of these ways, as we've discussed. Um, there are, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. The, especially the perfectionism issue, because it actually wasn't for me, it took me a long time to kind of figure that out. Ironically, I, just kind of always assume that I wasn't good enough to be a perfectionist, <laughs> which is of yeah. course ridiculous, which is yeah. the very nature of the problem itself. Um, it has nothing to do with that. It's a, it's an unrealistic kind of uh, you've got a goalpost that can never be reached. And um, for me, when I, when I coupled that with, uh, you know, working in an environment that, was already difficult to achieve just the, the kind of baseline standard, then I often had that kind of negative feedback that you're talking about there. And it was, it would be, you know, I'd, I could have a really good day and, you know, maybe I, I helped 10 people. I went above what I had to do and I helped 10 people uh, and I felt good about what I did there, but I didn't have time for one and it wasn't, the 10 people I was thinking about, it was the one. And this kind of uh, imbalanced feedback is a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the nature of, of, well, at least a, a good part of my negative kind of outlook problem that I've been working on. You have to, I have to make an effort and I am making an effort and I'm getting better at this, but you have to recognize your W's as much as your L's, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you feel the same way about that? Oh yeah. yeah. You know, and in, in certain circumstances, particularly within the healthcare setting, it can be hard to find that, that W so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but, and you know, even I, I recognize that even situations where there was a positive outcome or where I got positive feedback um, for some people, I think that would be the, the boost of confidence that could give them some energy give them kind of the, the supportive kick to, to keep them going throughout the day. Mm -hmm. But 
even if it wasn't something that I beat myself up over, I don't think I got that, that big boost or that big kick from it. Cause I would had this lingering, lingering self doubt. That's right. And instead of like you said, getting a kick, it's just like you tell yourself, okay, well, you did your job. You know? Yeah, that's right. Good for you. That's Move right. On. <laughs> so that kind of, that kind of fits into the category of neuroticism. It does. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you, can you speak to neuroticism a little bit? Well, I think it's just that it's, um, I think in myself, I tend towards, I, I'm, the, the darkness comes easy to me and I have to work hard at seeing the light. That's just kind of the way I'm set up. And it took me a long time to figure out that that's not the optimal way to operate. So an effort must be made by myself on a constant basis to to train my mind, retrain my mind to see, see the good, not just in, in myself, but I have to see, I have to look hard for the good in the world. I have to see it in people because I can go sour on everything real fast. So I got to, you know, I have to constantly be cultivating that. And it's not because I'm trying to, you know, be some happy go lucky guy. It's because I realize that that's, this is the better way to live for me. If I, you know, these kind of, that my attitude impacts every aspect of my life and nobody is going to be able to help me with that unless I'm going to put the effort into to doing something about it. Right. So yeah. I, it took me quite a while to figure that out. And um, I'm happy that, you know, I've, I've got the, the understanding of it finally to, to at least make an effort and it, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot. Like I believe that the mind is, is more malleable that way than maybe we used to think where you'd be kind of pigeonholed and whatever, you know, uh, Briggs Meyer set up, you were given at birth type of thing. Yeah. And, um, uh, I think there's more evidence now suggesting that that can be, you can be moved along those spectrums a little more than we thought. Uh, I certainly see that in myself. So um, yeah. And then just the, uh, like the, the baseline, uh, anxiety, I think is part of it. That's a big driver with, uh, my substance use in general, I think definitely in the beginning, because I didn't, I just didn't understand that that wasn't what everyone else was experiencing. And therefore it made sense for me to, to latch on to whatever made it go away. And I mean, that's, it's, that is not nearly as bad as it was when I was a teenager and young adult, but it's still there. So it's it, a lot of this stuff is um, it's being aware of what's going on in your own mind. And there's a lot going on in there all the time that we're, <laughs> we can't possibly keep track of everything. And um, the best we can do is just pick out a few areas that are important and then try to cultivate kind of a better road in those in those key areas. And that's kind of what we're, we're talking about here. There's, you know, maybe, you know, for me, it would be the, the perfectionism, the neuroticism. And then uh, the other one that I think is that gets me often in healthcare is because this is what I believe is going on because I find it difficult to achieve uh, like a kind of happy state. Right. I'm what would you call, I guess, a dysthymic, naturally a little dysthymic. So I run a little, uh, a little lower than most, um, naturally. 
So when I see somebody who comes along and I realize that I can make an impact in their life that is going to affect their happiness, I place a high value on that impact to the extent that I'm putting myself last. So I'll go out of my way to try and make that person's day better, which is great. I mean, it sounds great, but the problem is if you multiply that by 10 or a hundred and you know, day after day after day, it accumulates and you realize that you're actually not doing anybody a service because that's, it's another fast route to, uh, to burn up. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that person that you're holding in a higher esteem may themselves be struggling and neuro, you know, <laughs> battling some form of neuroses or negative self-talk too. Um, but it may just manifest itself in a, in a different way. Yeah. You know, I, the thing that comes to mind for me in the, in the research that we've, that I've done in prep for this is, is that all of these terms have stigma attached in one way or another. And the term neurotic gets, gets thrown around as a sort of a pseudo insult. And, uh, you know, for someone who's worried or someone who, um, might ruminate or someone who, uh, you know, the fretful hand wringing person, and that can very often get thrown around. Well, don't be so neurotic, but yeah, you're right. This is a very, very normal, um, mental health process processes that is on a spectrum in my opinion. So, um, you know, for me, a lot of the sort of sub definitions of, of neuroses don't necessarily fit me, but the one that really related to me was rumination. And that rumination for me, again, I can think back to childhood when that was a, a, a part of my life, but the part that it became where it became really challenging and where it started to interfere with work is the, the notion, the, the adage of don't bring work home. So it becomes really difficult when you're, when you're mulling and ruminating over something that happened, particularly if it's something traumatic or something that was complicated or had a bad outcome or left you with a lot of doubt or negative self-talk. Mm -hmm. So that rumination might have been throughout the course of a shift. And then it was there coming home and caused me not to sleep and then, yeah. or changed my, you know, affected my appetite affected. Oh God, I could think of, and, and that could be a cascade that could go down until the next day back at work again. Yeah. Well, yeah. Don't bring it home. That's like, uh, I mean, for you, for you nurses, uh, who are in acute care, that's like telling, a an Iraq, uh, veteran, like, okay, the war's over, uh, you know, job's over. Just leave it. Yeah. Leave it alone. Yeah, that's right. It's all good. Move on with your life. Yeah. Um, easier said than done for a lot of people, right? Probably for most people, but if you have some of these, pre preset personality traits going into it. Um, the challenge is certainly greater for sure. Yeah. Well, it's a really uh, cool observation you made about the stigma of all these different things that we picked out. I didn't, I didn't consider that. And I'm looking at this list and I'm like, huh? Yeah. You could say that about every single one of them. Yeah. They're all, they're all things that in society would be kind of a, like, you know, get it together or, uh, you know, shape up. It's not, they're not scathing insults, but they're kind of like toughen up type shit, right? They are. They are. And, and 
these are characteristics that do exist with within people that have addiction in their lives and there are characteristics of people who don't yeah and yeah. i think it it, it uh, speaks to the universal experience of humankind that that again on that spectrum we're all kind of there yeah yeah absolutely i that's totally the way i see it too yeah so this is a this next question here is um one that i can remember discussing since i was a kid i mean i i think the first time i ran into it i was uh probably 11 or 12, something like that. Somebody said that they have an addictive personality and um, it's a term that gets kind of tossed around everywhere. You see it. Uh, it was really, really popular, I think in the nineties and, yeah, you know, and yeah. then there was some kind of, uh, there was some kind of backlash against that term because I think the, the evidence hasn't really panned out uh, just definition wise and uh, because in the psychological sciences, they they have a lot of trouble setting up studies that uh, that don't get lost in semantics. And yeah. I think that because there's never been really a, a a solid kind of binding definition of what an addictive personality is, it kind of got just kicked along and finally it was everyone got frustrated and okay well i guess i guess we're just going to keep it as this kind of uh it's almost like a slang term for you're going to get in trouble with drugs right yeah but um when we look into it and look at some of the uh, some of the different personality traits uh comorbid conditions and factors that that have been studied towards that end we see that even though you know technically there's no such thing as an addictive personality, there is an addictive personality in that there's different, those kind of spectrums that we, we talk about. Um, I think empirically we can say just from our own experience and what we've seen that if, that if enough of those dials line up in the right way, you're, you're of course going to have more issues. You're, you're more set up to, uh, to run into trouble. So, um, I guess, you know, these are, I guess we could talk about what we've seen as far as different personality traits that, that have uh, kind of influenced people's behavior towards drugs and alcohol. Um, and I think we've discussed it, you know, is there anything else you would add personally, as far as your own personality is concerned? Well, I, I mean, I think, so one of the, one of the ones that we haven't touched on would be impulsivity. Yes. Um, Im impulsivity and sort of the tendency towards a um, compulsive self-soothing behavior. Um, I mean, now we could, that a compulsive self-soothing behavior could be, um, you know, eating <laughs> could be mm -hmm. shopping could be, you know, various things on the internet. Um, and the compulsive part of that being, you know, that it becomes a repetitive thing, a repetitive go-to to soothe whatever, 
whatever process is happening in the mind, be it negative self-talk, be it depression, be it um, perfectionism, sensitivity, mm-hmm. pain. Um, so that would be, that would be one thing that comes to mind. The piece with in, impulsivity. Um, now this is interesting because I think that impulsivity is something that, that can be um, corrected or can be, can change certainly within the process of, of recovery. So, you know, we've, we've talked about that kind of feeling of ambivalence about the world and, and what's going on and that if there is no point to, to this and as the process of depression occurs and continues to take hold, that level of impulsivity, I think does go up because you're that voice in your head is telling you who gives a shit, Corey, mm-hmm. just go for it, whatever. Yeah. You know, um, and then I think as you start to gain, gain, as I gained my life back and gained um, things that, that connected me and that um, brought me peace, brought me happiness. And, and we'll, and as I gained some of the tools to, to handle that self-talk, that need for impulsive behavior or that voice that was saying to hell with it certainly quieted down and got easier to manage. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. I'm just thinking about what you're talking about here. And it makes sense uh, when you look at, um, you know, it's not commonly known that uh, the majority of people who have trouble with uh, drugs and alcohol just naturally without treatment or help eventually kind of grow out of it. They call it sp- spontaneous recovery, but it's it's not like a, it's not really as miraculous as uh, as is claimed otherwise. Yeah. Um, and I think, a big part of that, uh, well, one thing we know, like for women, the number one factor in in spontaneous recovery is childbirth. So when a woman has a baby, the her perspective and priorities change, which is an important, that's an important part of it. And with that, I think there's an emotional maturity that probably would have happened naturally anyway, but that uh, you think of like real impulsivity, you can think of a kid, you know, where there's very little ability to delay gratification and that impulsivity can, can be nurtured um, or it can be just fed into so that, you know, by the time you're an adult, you're still that impulsive. You just, you know, whatever you want, you're going after it immediately. Um, So I think there's, as that is a, a kind of natural factor that can be developed uh, naturally as you age. Uh, eventually, I think humans have a tendency towards less impulsivity as we go along. And the other factors that uh, kind of tie into that would be um, like thrill-seeking behavior or um, seeking out novel experiences. So that would, for me, uh, novel experiences was a, uh, that was a big draw to drugs in the first place, like especially as a teenager, because I, I think I got jaded towards the world real quick and uh, drugs gave me a, another chance at kind of living in a place that was new and it gave me something else to explore, you know, and because in my mind, I'd already explored enough of the real world, which is, you know, that's a ridiculous thing, but that's, that's what, uh, what my mind state was at the time. Yeah, sure. You know, I, I think about w- with impulsivity, 
anyone who's seen the downtown east side of Vancouver and seen or in any of the many, many, many communities in our province that are that have a high number of people who are experiencing homelessness. And a lot of the judgment and criticism of, of that uh, behavior that is that they, that you can see if you're driving by or walking by kind of comes down to impulsivity. And um, I think back to our conversation a couple of episodes ago about the inability to see long-term that things become about the short term. Yeah. And, and you will look at, someone doing whatever and say, why would they, why would they do that to themselves? Why would they take that risk? Why would they go and steal? Why would they, you know, go to the bathroom on the side of the road? Um, Don't they care? Well, that the the long-term consequences are out the window. And, and again, it's, it's all, all very, very short term. And, um, and it, you know, without, without that lens of, of understanding it it can, that, I mean, I think judgment creeps in really, really fast with that kind of behavior. And um, I know that that even in a more sort of normative way, the, you know, the behavior that I exhibited at work of, of taking a drug off the counter um, is really, really hard to understand. Mm -hmm. But I look at the, the people on the, downtown east side of vancouver and say i i it's not quite as hard for me to understand now yeah and rightly so those people a lot of those people their entire life um i mean i've read uh i think it was one of gabor mate's uh books maybe uh hungry ghosts or i can't remember which one but yep he talks about uh there's a nine or ten year old girl there that basically was raised on, on the East side and her mother started her on heroin at 11 because she needed her to be a prostitute to help with covering rent. Right. So you look at somebody to me, that's a, that's a level of front loading the brain that is the absolute, you know, an extreme example of what happens when this person basically never had a chance as in your, her mind would be, would be so front loaded towards that drug, not only as a priority, but as, I mean, it would be your God basically, right? Because you didn't all through her developmental stages, she would have never known a time where that wasn't the only solace she ever had. So, I mean, it, it would be hard to, get into somebody's brain and, and actually feel what that's like, that level of uh, not just of, because you gotta, you have to take away all your understanding of, of the, of what goes on. Um, you know, you take away your education, you take away your, your proper childhood, uh, you take away nutrition, you know, you, you, you stack the deck so hard in one direction and then you can't, it would be a miraculous event to have that person come around. It's just, you know, the chances of it happening are, I don't know. I, it's, I've seen people's stories. I've, I've seen worse, way worse stories and that actually horrendous. You wouldn't think there is anything worse than that. But um, sometimes when I see people like that, I just think, man, 
why are we like, why don't we just give this play, this person, um, like they deserve to have a place to sleep where they're not in danger. Uh, they deserve some food and maybe just get them whatever drug they want until they can like get enough stability in their life so they can figure which way is up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, you, to try and wrap your head around, um, um, somebody who's in that state is, uh, is tough to do. But like you said, it's, it's, it is the same problem. It's just the extreme version of it. Yeah. But that same front loading, that same short-term front loading exists for the person with, you know, compulsive overeating or the, the, the shopaholic quote unquote, or, the cigarette smoker or the alcohol consumer who, who, who wants that, um, wants that voice of saying enough is enough. I've had, or I've had enough. I'll put this down or I can walk away. Once, once a, a malfunction happens there, we're talking about virtually the same thing again mm-hmm. on a spectrum, but it, but it, it is. So I think to, to see ourselves, you know, and this is the, the kind of the, if you want to call it beautiful or not, the universal part of human existence is that these are kind of the same things that we're talking about. They are the same thing. Yeah. And that's, I think that's really tough for people to, to see because I mean, especially now um, I think society has never been more, there's just such a push towards division and humans already have that natural tendency. Um, yeah. We have us, them ingrained in our nature and we love to, we love to put up walls between each other. And when you see somebody like said, who's, who's on the street and you're like, oh my God, like what is wrong with that person? You're, you don't relate to that person in a way that, you know, you think, well, that could be me. That's, that's not a lot of people don't don't allow for that to happen. They, they see it as something far away or something completely alien but I don't believe that's the case. Um, And judging by, well, what did we do here? You said October 201 overdose. So we're new record for BC uh, last month. You know, the numbers continue to climb. Um, You know, you compare the money spent on, on, uh, on what's going on on with uh, our uh, infectious disease problem. I'll call it that. Yeah. Um, compared to what's being done to uh and and the thing is with the the opioid crisis is we're losing people the the majority of the people we're losing is are in the like 25 to 45 age bracket you know these are people who still have a lot to to offer potentially you know we're losing people that that you know otherwise could have had a and maybe are having a very positive um uh, impact. And then they go out early, like, uh, um, was a couple of years ago, one of the universities in uh, BC lost their, their Dean. And I think it was Hydromorph that got him. And, you know, this it, it was complete shock and surprise to, to everybody. And, uh, but this is what's going on and it's not, it's not, I mean, yes, there's, uh, we have a problem with uh, a big problem with fentanyl and, uh, and access to methamphetamine and the combination right now is particularly dangerous and it's in an, and insidious and cheap. 
Um, but there's a lot more than that going on that, that is contributing to this problem. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Um, you no, know, and I mean, if you think about 201 deaths from opioids in October, and let's say conservatively that each of those person had five people in their lives that cared about them. Maybe it's a fractured relationship. Maybe it's from a distance, but that, that there are five people who knew who they were, you know, we're, we're, and that's conservative. There are, there would be some that would have, you know, 20, 30 people who knew who they were or had lost them. So now we're talking about numbers that are in, in the thousands. And that's, if you think about the, the ripple effect, the impact of that, it's a lot of lives impacted and the impact yeah. of trauma. And um, yeah. I've seen estimates where the average uh, is around 200 people impacted by an early death like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, eventually when you're stacking up those kind of numbers per month in a province of only like, what is there? 4 million of us here? Something like that. I haven't looked in a while, but uh, you know, there's not that many of us to have that kind of continual radiating pulsing, you know, this is, there should be alarm bells going on. Yeah. You know, that should be in my mind, that should be for the last two and a half years more. It, it, it should have been way more. It should be in the public eye to the extent that uh, our infectious disease friend is um, times 10. Yeah, you know. it should. It should. Hmm. It should. I, I wanted to circle back for a moment to um, to the the statement about novel experience. You know that that is a a a trait, or the the seeking of novel experience rather. Um, and I think back to to emergency departments that I've that I've worked in and encountered, um, and particularly in the larger centers that are um, very much prone to to receiving trauma patients and like a high acuity, the sickest of the sick kind of a thing for, for whatever community. Uh, if you did a poll, a personality poll on all of the staff that worked there of all of the nurse, let's say nurses and doctors that worked there. Um, and even, even support staff. I, I think that the boxes that would be checked off would be like all down the line. Um, seeking of novel experiences is certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, thrill seeking too, right? It, like a, it, it a, a lot of people in acute trauma are kind of like they'd like that adrenaline hit. You know? Yeah, and it's and it's again, it becomes a badge of honor, mm-hmm. and it becomes something that um, that valor and and um, virtue are are attached to. Um, yeah, understandably to some degree, because because you've just saved a life. Or throughout the course of a day, you've helped umpteen people um, get better from a life-threatening health issue. So there is there is virtue in that, and there is valor in that. I I, I don't want to take that away, but but there are also common personality traits that do put that population of healthcare workers at risk. Yeah, well, it's higher stakes gambling. You know, if you're a healthcare professional and you're after, I mean. As a pharmacist, like my, in comparison, my job satisfaction is hilarious, right? Like maybe I uh, helped somebody get access to a medication that they couldn't afford. Um, maybe I, you know, I, 
changed the medication that made somebody uh, feel a little bit better or is maybe a little more effective for them, whatever, you know, it's very rare that I'm going to be, you know, having that kind of a large scale impact on somebody's on their, their existence. Right. Whereas in your department, um, you're gambling with all your chips on the table all the time. So you might, you know, okay, right on. We saved three people today, but you know, you miss one and it's not, it's not, uh, you know, especially if you're, if you're somebody who's sensitive to other people's pain and suffering, I mean, I don't think it would take very long before, you know, a, tra- a few traumatic deaths start to kind of have an impact on you that are sure. hard to shake, you know, and we see that. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think we got, uh, yeah, openness to experience kind of the same thing. Um, everyone's got a different level of, like, I think we've, we've discussed where you can have, you can have individuals where they're checking off all the boxes. They look like they would be susceptible to getting into trouble with drugs and alcohol, but their refusal to be open to new experiences saved them because they're just not that type of person. They're not going to, they're not going to try smoking weed. They're not going to, they don't even want to mess with booze, you know, and I, you see these type of people and it's, it's an interesting kind of thing because I, I can't identify them. I can't identify with them personally on that level because I'm, I'm very open to new experiences and have been all my life. So, you know, there's benefits and uh, obviously drawbacks to uh, having that trait, but uh, yeah. it's interesting that you can, you can have that one single kind of attribute and it uh, can keep you out of a lot of trouble. It's true. And I mean, it, it speaks to how we are all one or two decisions away mm-hmm. from changing our lives for better or for worse. And if, in the case of, of uh, encountering drugs or, or alcohol or putting ourselves at risk, it's yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it could be, it could be as simple as that. In episode one, I spoke of, uh, you know, the, the manager who told me you're, you're far too sensitive to, uh, go into a, uh, field of nursing where you're going to be taking on that, that much pain from the general public. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> had I listened to her, the course of my life would have been, been very, very different. Um, yeah. and being able to sort of turn that lens towards myself and, and, um, and so, but we, we, we make decisions in for various reasons and, uh, and we'll kind of come to, we'll come to that near the end about what sort of what to do about that. But, um, yeah, that's certainly something I, I reflect on. So Nathan, yeah. can I ask you this, this next question here? Um, you mentioned dysthymia at the beginning of the, uh, of our discussion here. Mm-hmm. So what was the role that dysthymia, depression, and anxiety um, played in, in the development of your addiction. Okay. Um, well, anxiety, I discussed uh, in a previous episode, and I think that was uh, what we talked about with the beehive there. It was uh, um, whatever the cause was, um, maybe, there, maybe there was no cause, maybe it's just genetic. I don't know. But uh, I seem to have a low-grade, uh, just kind of constant uh, angst, you know, and it's not, it's, it's totally not something that's overwhelming, but it's, it's enough, enough of an annoyance that 
when you run into something that takes it away, you notice. So in that respect, I think that was, I think that's what really, you know, I, the first time I had alcohol, uh, or the first time I got drunk, I guess was when I was 13, maybe. And I, you know, I, that, that was the biggest, uh, like that was the takeaway, you know, it was like, wow, that, that took that away. Like, I didn't feel that. And I was like, I didn't even know that was possible. Right. So it's like a, kind of like a magic, a form of magic to be able to do that. So that, uh, that of course makes it much more attractive. Now, if you had somebody who, who doesn't have that happening and that, you know, maybe that wouldn't have been such a hook, you know, that's, so that's, that's a fairly uh, straightforward one for me to understand. Uh, the dysthymia, again, I think is something that uh, kind of took me a little bit to figure out and kind of be okay with, with the way that my mind functions. Um, because, you know, overall, I'm, I feel quite blessed with the, you know, my brain works properly, even though I beat the hell out of it for you know, <laughs> however many years, yeah. uh, you know, I've had massive concussions, uh, you know, been punched in the head and yet here I am, I'm still able to, uh, you know, string words together and have a cohesive thought. So I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm happy about that. And, uh, if I have to deal with a little bit of, uh, you know, not feeling as happy generally as, as other people, that's fine. I can, I can deal with that. But again, I think, um, because maybe it makes it a little bit, I think it plays into, uh, like we discussed anhedonia. So you're, uh, I get less of a thrill out of things that would maybe thrill other people a little more just on a, you know, just on a, if you look at a bell curve, it would maybe take a little bit more of, uh, a, a pleasure item to get me going, you know? Yeah. And same. yeah. So because of that, um, you know, drugs naturally, I mean, that's one of the things they do is they, they switch the perspective and kind of increase whatever, you know, they, they put a spin on whatever you're doing. So I think it can, there was a, an immediate realization that with drugs, I was able to, um, you know, kind of, get more of a, uh, a thrill, like, like a normal person would, well, you know, it could be anything you're, you're going on a roller coaster and now it's like 10 times more fun, you know, like that became the, that became the thing where I was constantly trying to not only shake the dysthymia, but get past it and above it, you know? Yeah. So there's that. And then, um, for me, I think that depression maybe, um, I think was, was brought on a lot by drug use, especially towards uh, when I really started to run into trouble. And then, like I mentioned before, I think I ran into a particularly rough patch uh, when I, in my early thirties and was just not equipped or prepared. Uh, I had been living a far, like just, you know, a hedonistic lifestyle and I just didn't have the armor, you know? So I wasn't, uh, I didn't even really, I wasn't even really aware of what was going on with me. I just, I was just kind of clicking along one fun thing to the next. And all of a sudden things weren't fun anymore. And I was like, okay, well, so that coupled with, um, you know, eventual whatever problems that I had going on in my life at the same time made it so that, you know, now, now I needed a lot just to feel normal. It seemed 
And that's where opiates just kind of fit like a glove. Get the opiates going and it doesn't really matter what your problem is, right? You're just, you're back in and away you go. So is it a, is it a coping? Was it a coping issue with you? Do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was, I was not because I had, uh, it, it kind of like, I've been living too soft, you know, not doing the, like, it's like getting into a fight, you could say, and you took two years off the gym and <laughs> you're doing no training whatsoever. And you wonder why you're gassed in the first 20 seconds. That's kind of what it was like. I just, I, I was not prepared for the battle that was coming. And because of that, I, 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 I basically started leaning on whatever I could lean on to get through. Right. Yeah. And uh, opiates were the, the, the solution to that at that time. Yeah. You know, I think about it. That, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. You know, I, I've, the thing that came to mind was that I have, I've labeled myself looking back at, at the time when I was addicted as being fairly high functioning in that I kept all of like the material aspects of my life together. Um, but I didn't do it while still being able to keep my um, mental health together. And well, that is the trick, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, like that, that's, that's a, you know, a huge losing battle, a huge uphill battle that, you know, you do hear, you've, you've mentioned this before that you do hear stories of people who are able to use substances for a really, really, really long time in their lives. Or, you know, I think of the poet William Burroughs, who was doing drugs until he was in his eighties. Um, or Willie Nelson, who smoked pot until he was in his mid eighties here. Um, and I'm making an assumption here that, that those people didn't weren't impacted by the, the, that sort of depressing effect of some of these substances and like that, yeah. that lowered mood, that state of anhedonia, the inability to experience joy and, and pleasure and happiness. Um, well, most people can use drugs recreationally. Like let's not, I mean, it's not, um, Drugs are dangerous, okay? But they're not, drugs themselves are not the problem, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's the way I look at it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's a reason why uh, people can, um, can use, like there's, I mean, there's people out there who can use uh, hard opiates recreationally. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's bananas. I don't, I can't put, you know, that's just not something I can do, but it's, it's just the way that they're uh, that they're set up mentally and genetically, so that it's you know it, it just doesn't it doesn't have the same hook or allure. And um, you know, I look at well, you look at uh, you know, Willie Nelson. I guess you can use him as an example. I mean, what more do you want? Like the guy is a successful artist. He seems to be happy. He's he's got great. Uh, he's got good friendships. He's uh, uh, he's very successful. I mean, so if yeah. he wants to smoke pot, I think smoke pot, Willie, that's great. You know, I, I, I have no, uh, I think there's for some people it it's, it's about what, what works for you. And I like that, uh, 
my dad has a question that he asks whenever somebody's got a problem and he gets them to explain kind of what they're doing in their life and, and what kind of coping mechanisms they're using and everything. And then he says, well, how's that working for you? And it's quite yeah. brilliant really, because you, it's, it, that is the question, isn't it? It's, you know, if you, if, if, if you look at the strategy I was using with opiates and I asked myself how that's working, I said, well, it's, it worked very well for a short period of time. It works a little bit for a little bit of time. And now towards the end, it barely works at all. And in fact, I got a lot of problems that are piling up here and I can't deal with them. So you could say it's not working very fucking well at all, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, and then, you know, that's when, you know, you've got a problem. It's a, it's a manageability issue. Is it working for you or is it not? And if yeah, it's not right. working for you, then you better make a change. Yeah. And this is, <laughs> it's, it's so absurd to look back on. Like I, I think of, um, I was using it as a means of, of coping with a whole lot of things that were going on in my life and a whole lot of ways that I was feeling. And I was gauging, I was measuring the, um, how functional I was based on material things. But if mm -hmm. I had a, and I, by that point it was too late, but looking at like, was it working for my mental health? Was it making my mood better? Was it getting rid of my negative thinking? Was it um, making all of the traumatic shit that I had experienced go away? Well, it, for like the time that I was high, but all of that traumatic, awful shit was still right back there. Uh, not even the next day, you know, by later in that day, mm -hmm. it didn't go anywhere. So it was a, but uh, as I've sort of said in the past, in, in our past episode, that that drug kind of takes on a voice and kind of takes on a, a, um, a persuasive characteristic. It ha holds a place in the brain where it, it lies and says, you know, that it is working. It convinces you that it is working. Um, and I don't know that it would have been possible for me to, to break that without stopping taking the drug. Like, I, I don't think it would have been, I think I would have, that would have just sort of perpetuated itself over and over and over and over again. Um, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I don't think that uh, because it's like for both of us, I think that when you're getting that level of, of reinforcement and what I mean by that is there's still, that drug is still providing you with enough positives and it's very vocal in your mind. Like you said, it's, it, it, it works the opposite of how I normally am, um, where I'm, I'm looking around and I'm seeing negatives. That part of my mind that the, the drug is using as a voice is, is the opposite. It's romanticizing all the time. And even when you, you know, even now, when I think about it, it's, it's, it tells my, it shows my mind good times, you know, uh, comfortable times. It, it wants to remind me about how good it was. And it, it's, bizarre that it has that kind of power even now to do that you know yeah um it's fascinating that it can sort of stay in your mind and and have its own little entity there and i don't you know we've talked about it before but i don't think that little entity is ever going to go away it's just going to sit there and it's going to talk about how uh, how good oxycontin is and <laughs> and i just kind of got to sit there and be like all right yeah whatever man but it's, it's, it's that the voice that is truly ours and it is like that, that part of the brain that, that we own, um, 
that is our personality traits, our ability to cope, our, our ability to manage stress, all of these things that are that are what make us a human. And and I think recovery teaches us to um, put those parts of the brain into the into the gym and and beef them up. And so the ability to talk back to that to that voice strengthens and and then like that clarity of of what was actually going on um really again comes with comes with time and comes with stepping away um and again like so i I mentioned this in in one of the episodes about like looking at looking back at myself now or looking at myself now and then looking at the quarry from from when i was using i um i'm almost physically disgusted by the thought because of all of the ways that it made me feel. Um, you know, f- for example, the, the nausea and vomiting that, that would come with opiate use for me, especially, you know, later in the, in the game, when it was, when my, the, the dosing was, was getting higher. Well, any other life circumstance that you put yourself in that induces nausea and vomiting, that is a, your body is rejecting something and your body is sending your brain a clear message that something is wrong and this isn't working. Mm-hmm. Or um, uh, world-class constipation is also a uh, right. <laughs> wonderful side effect. <laughs> right. So why on earth would, would you continue to put yourself in that position? Well, the, the voice of the, of the drug is there and, and that whole, that whole hook and the whole loop that's happening is there. But um now I look back and I think, Ooh, I don't want to feel that way. Like the, the, um, the cost benefit analysis that we, that we do says all of those other things make it really, really undesirable. Yeah. That's a really, I mean, that's a healthy place to be. Um, yeah. Cause I was, uh, that early on for me, I was not there. I was still romanticizing and I don't think I even realized to what extent I was romanticizing. So when I see somebody who's, you know, you're less than a year out, I think, is that right? Over 14 months out. Oh, 14 months. Okay. And you're, you're talking like that. Um, that's a good sign. <laughs> I, especially what I've noticed, um, it really for smokers, when you hear a smoker and they've quit and they talk about it like that, where they're, they're kind of disgusted by it. Those people always seem to quit. And I think there's something there with they've, yeah they've kind of beat their own um, they're seeing that drug for what it is. And they, they actually want to end that, that cycle of addiction, which is maybe the biggest factor. I believe it is the biggest factor. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's good. That's awesome. man. Um, so I guess now that we've talked about these things, uh, we could give people a little bit of an idea of uh, some of the strategies that we used to deal with these personality traits that we know we have. Yeah, for um, sure. So uh, a couple of the ones that we wrote down here is uh, talking about establishing boundaries, which is a real popular kind of term to say. A lot of people throw that around and I don't think very many people really sit down and think about what it means. Um, learning to say no again, you know, you look at any self-help section, there's about 20 books on, you know, the art of saying no, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) People need a lot of coercion to be able to say no. 
Yeah, but it is important. Uh, and then putting yourself first and for, I think both of us, I know for myself, I nearly drove myself over the edge by uh, being so goddamn harsh to my, like I just, my, the interior of my mind was so brutal and I was being so negative and so hard on myself that um, you eventually realize like, okay, well, if you're not going to cut yourself some slack and if you're not going to be on your own team and start treating yourself like, uh, like you're, you know, a friend, then you might as well throw in the towel now because you're never going to make it. You can't succeed in that kind of battle where you're not on your own team. And it, sure. it took me right to the edge to figure that out. That was, or, you know, it was probably a good year of just, you know, just grinding it out against myself, trying to like, justify my actions or you know just a horrible kind of dialogue and um and it's it's not the way to go <laughs> no that's right Put it that way but uh, let's start with boundaries i guess um uh, maybe since you're um you're not back to nursing but there's probably other areas in your life where you've probably had to kind of put up boundaries, I guess, or, or, or make decisions based on where these boundaries need to be. And I think, I think something that helped me understand how to do that was to first prioritize what was important to me. Yeah. So, and this is something that I do every one to three months. I'll just, I'll sit there. I have a list and I look at my list and I, okay, what is the most important thing in the world to you? What, what you know, and you start with, you know, whatever, you, whatever you've got at the top, your family and you, you, you know, you got your dog and your job and your money is somewhere on there. And, you know, so all these things kind of fluctuate um, a little bit depending on, uh, you know, what part of the list you're looking at. But if you don't have a clear idea of what matters to you and it doesn't, you know, you'd think it's obvious, but it's not really obvious because a lot no. of times you're going to have to kind of do Sophie's choice, right? It's going to be, there's somebody pulling from this way and there's somebody pushing from that way. Now, what do we do here? And you don't want to be trying to build a fence in the middle of a trespassing event. <laughs> you know, you want to yeah. kind of have this thing established in your mind. So do you have examples of uh, times when you've kind of had to use that technique? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think um, for me, just to build on what you said for a sec, the, the, you're talking about the hierarchy of values. So the thing that strikes me is that, you know, the first couple of times I did that exercise, um, my mental health and my sobriety didn't make the, didn't make the cut, didn't make the top 10 list. <laughs> um, but the, but like you, all of the other things that you said, my home, um, my family, my son, money, employment, they were all on the list. Mm -hmm. And um, so for a big part of, of upholding boundaries for me has been recognizing that that is the first, that, that my mental health, putting that at the top makes all of the other things, literally every single one of them um, fall into place so much easier and, and strengthens each and every one of them. Yeah. And, and strengthens my boundaries. So if I, um, you know, I've mentioned this before that, that the message that we give ourselves when we, allow our boundaries to be tread on either in a, in an interaction with someone um, out in the public 
or someone in our personal lives um, or an employer where we say, yeah, I'll take on more or yeah, I don't want to do that. That doesn't work for me, but I'll just do it because then it's done. I think for me that there's a message that I'm giving myself in that. And that message when I do that is saying I'm of lesser importance. Yeah. Um, so to say, so to have interactions where I say, no, raising this issue or, or sitting in that challenging interaction for the couple of minutes that it will take, the payoff for me is that my mental health will remain intact and I won't be ruminating about that later on and I won't be betraying myself and um, I'm giving myself positive reinforcement by telling myself that I'm important. Um, and you know, that, that can be as simple as, um, encountering someone in a grocery store, you know, uh, here, here's an example, encountering, a someone that I've known in a, in a grocery store and they might know, they might know my story about why I'm off work and what happened to me. And it's a weird interaction. And it's an interaction that makes me think, oh, Jesus, they're looking right through my, <laughs> right through my soul. And they know everything that's up with me and they're judging me. Uh, it is in fact a boundary to, for me to be able to have that interaction and walk away and say, you know, this might not be about me. Or I know that I'm, I'm doing all right. I've done all these things to get my, get my life together and I can walk away with my head held high. A boundary isn't always about that challenging interaction and being assertive and saying no I'm saying, saying no but it might be about not picking up that thought you know so there's yeah. a there's a boundary that can exist out in the in the in public interaction but there's also a boundary with within our own brain where we say nope not going to go there this time yeah it's about knowing yourself and knowing your limits and why it's detrimental to yourself to exceed those limits. Um, I mean, work is the the most obvious example of that. And, you know, the, the whole healthcare work yourself to uh, work yourself to death kind of badge of honor thing. Um, how silly that is when you, you know, you step away and you look at it for what it is. And it's basically, you know, you're not, if you're allowing that system to have that kind of priority in your life, then how else can you take that? I mean, you, it's like you said, you're, you're saying, I, I'm aware that if I take that extra shift, I'm going to be a shitty pharmacist. I might even uh, say something to a customer that they don't deserve or, or uh, in, you know, handle a situation in a less than optimal way because I'm done and I shouldn't be in the pharmacy anyway. Yep. But if you're not, if you're not acknowledging that and you're just punching through all the time, well, yeah, of course you, I mean, how does that make you feel about yourself? Right. It's like, yeah. Who's, who's watching out for you? You know, it's gotta be you. That's right. So, that's right. Um, I think that's probably one of the, you know, if we're, if we're talking to healthcare professionals out there, don't get caught in that nonsense trap where you're getting that pat on the back for you know, pulling the extra shift or, or doing whatever it is you, you, they want you to do when you know that that's, you know, your job is maybe nine on your priority list, right? And you're sacrificing number two, number four, and number six to pull that extra shift. That is going to form cognitive dissonance immediately. 
That's right. Because your actions are out of line with your your priorities and what you actually value. That's the, the, the actual definition of cognitive dissonance. So don't be surprised that if you're going to continue in that course of, course of action, um, you're going to start to feel kind of off. You know, like it's it's not a grounding feeling. It's a it's the opposite of that. And I think that's that's the start of the unraveling, where you can get to a place where you're starting to reach around looking for something to hold on to, and unfortunately, that can be, you know, a substance for for some people. Yeah, and it's and uh, no knock on overtime or those who pick up overtime, but it's in the in the working world, it's actually reinforced. You know, and and not not everyone who who picks up overtime is is betraying themselves. No, no, but, no. But I think all of us can think of a time where, you know, last minute we've been put on the spot, um, where you're in a situation where you gotta you gotta stay extra, or you gotta take on take on more, and um, and there's a financial incentive, mm-hmm. and that does temporarily um, soften the blow or make 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 that thought more manageable. Um, but at the end of the day, if you're sleep deprived and not eating when you should and taking on more stress and then bringing that home and stuff, um, I would question, question how much, much it's worth it. Um, Well, this is the thing that, uh, it's an easier thing to see if you're looking from the outside in for sure. I I had a guy I was working with a couple of years ago and he was doing really well. Um, you know, he's maybe, I don't know, the guy's maybe doing like six, 700,000 a year. He's, you know, he's getting into that echelon of, you know, fairly wealthy. He's got a few houses and uh, he's got a wife and kids and his wife is, you know, having a hard time with the kids and he's not the guy who it just refuses to, to help her refuses to eat. He, it's a, I guess a cultural thing maybe, but you know, that's the woman's job and his job is to make money. And <clears throat> I started to notice this guy's making some pretty big mistakes. And I, I said, man, like, even if you look at this from a financial point of view, you know, how about you, you cut down to like, how about your new goal is 350,000 for this year and you don't get divorced. And he's like, ah, that's not going to happen. Uh, Eight months later, he's in divorce proceedings and, you know, he's going to lose for sure. He's going to lose two of his houses. He's going to lose a couple cars. He's going to lose a shitload more than the whatever three or, you know, 400,000 that it would have cost, you know, even if he would have achieved that that year. It's just the inability to, uh, and I don't, uh, like I said, it's a lot easier for somebody on the outside to see that when you're in it and you've got yourself convinced that, uh, you know, some people put a value, like their job and the amount of money they make is a huge part of their identity. And, you know, I think we got to, we have to acknowledge that. And in no way are we saying that it's wrong to work hard. It's just that you need to pay attention to whether or not the work that you're doing is in alignment with your, with your real priorities if that is your priority to make money, that's the number one, then absolutely go after it, man. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think, like you said, they're just, 
in healthcare, um, you know, there's, there's too many people who, who just get kind of coerced into taking a shift when they're not really thinking about it. Maybe they're fatigued already, you know, and they're not making a, a very good decision, but it's, it's those because the, because the line wasn't already drawn, um, you know, where I, I don't, I have a maximum on what I'll do for full-time work. And other than that, I'm three days a week in a pharmacy. That's my rule. Yeah. And I know that's what it's got to be because if I exceed a certain number of shifts, then, you know, I can see a change in my performance. I can see it starts to affect my sleep. I, you know, I'm carrying a lot more tension uh, and it trickles down into other aspects of my life that are more important to me than that job. So it's, again, it's a, it's a priority kind of triage, I guess you could call it. For sure. And if, if neuropathways exist, um, based on a, you know, a, a starting point of a stimuli, stimuli, and then sort of the reward. Um, even if you're fatigued and you're worn out and you've got all of the stress, then you get, um, get the strokes for being, for picking up the slack and being the person who pulls the 16 hour shift. And you know that you're going to get double time and a half or whatever. Um, you are reinforcing that pathway each time you do it and you're getting a little dopamine kick each time you yeah. do it. And yeah, and it that's gets true. easier. Yep. It gets easier and easier to do it all the while you may or may not be um, sacrificing what's most important to you or telling yourself that, that your uh, health and well-being is actually a priority. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't, I think, I think it's easier for people to understand that, I mean, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and think of it like that, and you've got at the bottom, we need to have our health. If we don't have our health, it doesn't, nothing, the rest of the stuff. I mean, if you're in the hospital in intensive care, your priorities have shifted quite a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, and then if you layer mental health right on top of that and just look at it from my health at the, on the very bottom and then mental health is next. This is the platform for everything that allows me to continue to function as a human being in a way that is, you know, kind of constructive, uh, you know, and keeps me out of, you know, you're still going to get into trouble. You're still going to have problems, but you're going to have a better chance if you focus on those two as the foundation to your entire, your entire, you know, persona. Yes. And if you can do that and, and put the emphasis on, on mental health and physical health and, and health in general, then, you know, you've got a way better chance of staying out of trouble. And that's, that's kind of how, like you said, when you first did your um, hierarchy of, of priorities, you didn't even have mental health on there. And that's, that's a common thing that happens. Lots of people don't even, they can be uh, in active addiction. They won't even put their drug of choice on the list no. when really the drug of choice should be number one. And that's, that's that part of don't just answer the question, think about it. Like be honest, dig, you know, what really is motivating you? What really is number one? Yeah. Is, you know, is the Oxycontin number one or is your wife number one? <laughs> you know, think about it Yeah. and, and face the reality of that, of that, whatever question and whatever answer comes back that it does you no good to pretend that it's any other way than what it is. You have to have that figured out. Once you got that figured out, then you can start making adjustments. 
Yeah. Or it will bite you in the ass. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> Every time. No, you, there's no fooling yourself. No. I mean, you're going to want to, you're going to try to, and it's part of the whole, the whole package of the problem. But the less you can fool yourself and the more you can uh, be honest, be kind and advocate for yourself as a, um, you know, like I, you just, like I said, you, you got to be on your own team and you got to be, you, you have to be, because honestly, I mean, we're all blessed with, you know, uh, we both have good people in our lives, lots of support and stuff like that. Um, but even then you can't expect those people to, to be able to make those kind of decisions for you. They don't know what your priorities are. They don't know what, what goes on inside your head. So you yeah. have to figure that out and you have to decide what's important and then figure out a way to stand by it in a way that makes sense to you. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which if you don't mind, that kind of leads us to the next um, kind of trick or tool that I've, I've learned in this process that has really helped me. Um, we're skipping over one, but what comes to mind for me is self-compassion um, and how I have learned that through this process of recovery and how I wish I had that much earlier on um, because all of these personality traits that we've been talking about here tonight, um, perfectionism, uh, sensitivity, um, they are sort of the opposite of self-compassion. It, it, it is the, they are the voice that is telling you that you're not enough and that you're not good and that you've got all this pain that you can't manage and et cetera. Um, but the practice of self-compassion has, has really helped to mend that. The way that I've gained that is through connection and through um, universal experiences and, and seeing us as a, as a seeing the universal universality of, of all people. Uh, and that's through groups. So, so getting connected to the groups that I've gotten connected to hearing other people's stories, hearing other people's struggles, it's far easier because I'm a, an empathetic person by, by my nature, um, which I didn't give myself a whole lot of credit for before, but I am, I am that. Mm -hmm. And if I can look at other people and say, wow, your story is heavy while wow, you're carrying a lot of pain and you've been through such a journey and, and uh, those moments must've been really hard. It, it over time has become easier to, to turn that lens onto myself and say, well, if we're all in the same boat here, we all faced addiction. Am I really different from all of these people in these different groups that I'm in? Well, that's if I actually write it down and, and, and look at myself side by side with all these people, I'm no different. Um, then it's much easier to turn that lens to myself and say, Corey, you cut yourself a little bit of slack here. And that, that perfectionism where you're telling yourself you're not enough and you had to do more and take on more. That's not, that's not rational. That's not reasonable. Um, you know, that notion that you can just carry more and more and more burden and that you'll, you know, sort of be, be a martyr for the cause. That's not rational and, and reasonable either. Mm -hmm. um, I did a, I, I did a fascinating thing. So the, um, the, the image for reco the recovering machine podcast is a, is a clay figure that I did during art therapy. Those, the two clay figures that I did. And I did them specifically with, with specific individuals in mind that I encountered at work, people who had, who had died of overdose. And 
I did it as a way of kind of trying to trying to release that memory and uh, did those over a year ago. And they've sat on a shelf in my house. And uh, I had occasion to revisit those clay pieces as you and I were starting this, this process and um, came to think that that would be a really interesting image. And then it, it, it struck me in, in conversations that I had, that that is, that was me. I was doing those figures about myself subconsciously, or at least that, that if, if I see the, the pain in that other individual and see that other individual's experience that because I am having had the same struggles, um, that that was me there. And it is by, um, fortune and grace and, and luck that I didn't end up in that same, in that same state having died. But, but, um, when I re when I re looked at that clay image, I thought, "Holy shit! I'm looking at myself here. I'm not looking at this this guy that died three or four years ago that you know was stuck in my memory. Mm-hmm. Um, if if that is him and we are the same, then that is me. Yeah, and um, yeah. So so that's that's something that has to be practiced. And the other piece that I was thinking about was, was self-acceptance and self-acceptance is different than, than self-compassion because it's, um, you're, you're telling yourself that, that you are all right. And I think part of that also means accepting that other people are all right too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and yeah, uh, no, if you're hard on everyone else, then you're probably hard on yourself, right? That, that's right. Yeah. Compassion and acceptance, I think kind of have to go hand in hand. And, um, and it's an act of practice to, to again, to kind of like, I've used the analogy of strengthening that muscle, um, but compassion and acceptance are a part of forgiveness or forgiveness is a part of compassion and, and acceptance, I think. And, um, oh man, the sooner we, we do that, the sooner I did that, it was like such a, such a literal weight off my shoulders. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Um, that was the, I think I was in, in the most danger. Like I I was never more dangerous to myself than when I was in that state of, of not accepting. And, you know, there was no tolerance for myself and what, what happened. I would not allow for the mistakes that were made. And that's, uh, yeah, that's a a quick drive to, uh, a really uh, terrible mind space. And yeah, it, yeah. I, I feel it when you say, when you, you reach a point and you're like, okay, this isn't helping, you know, I got to find a way to, I got to find a way to get on my own team. And then you, you know, things start to, to line up and you've got a chance to, to start seeing things a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's um, so easy to, to look back at our, our, I, you know, I, you could probably answer this better than I could, but I'm not sure that uh, there that it exists that there's a healthcare worker who um, became addicted at work or outside of work um, who isn't brutally hard on themselves and who isn't then um, who, who doesn't have that part of their story uh, weigh them down for a period of time. And it's, uh, it's yeah, yeah, that would be very rare. I've never heard of such a thing. No, no. no. And so that, but that, that, self-downing that beating ourselves up really kind of not only perpetuates the depression and perpetuates the, that 
that rough state of mental health, but it, it itself puts us at risk. Well, big risk like, yeah. for, for, for relapse and for Re- relapse and yeah. suicide. That's relapse and suicide. Yeah. yeah. It was suicide was the one that what I realized was that, uh, you know, that idea was starting to turn over in my head too frequently. And I was like, this is what's going to happen here, man. If you don't uh, change the rhetoric inside your mind, you're going to talk yourself into ending this shit. And that is not, uh, that is not an acceptable uh, solution to this problem at this point in time. So figure it out, man. And uh, yeah, I mean, that, for me, that's, that's what it, what it got to as I, you know, I realized it and I wasn't, that was more of a concern to me than, than, I mean, I don't know. I just, I was in a situation where I, I didn't have ready access because I'd taken myself out of that, out of that, you know, particular danger. But, uh, but regardless, I mean, it would be the same way. If you, if you get to the point where you're driving yourself that crazy uh, and you had your substance of choice sitting there. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you're, yeah. No human can withstand that kind of constant punishment when the relief is right there. I mean, you know, it's, it's obvious what would happen. So what about patients? How did you, to me, patience with ourselves is another huge part of the solution in when you were in that, in that place, how did you tell yourself, like, give yourself that patience uh, regarding the the time that this was going to take and and um, the fact that there isn't a quick immediate fix apart from apart from suicide. Well, I it, I rejected that idea for a long time and and continued in that cycle of uh, where I was just kind of hanging on the edge there and I was just keeping myself together by like distraction, right? Like meditation mm-hmm. and reading for as long as I could and then I could only you know, there would be a certain time that I could, I couldn't just, if I, you know, had to like talk to people and stuff like that, if I was left by myself, I would just start thinking and, and, um, you know, there, there was no, there was no attempts at cutting myself slack towards patience with, with the process. It wasn't until I realized that, uh, how dangerous my thinking was becoming that I started to kind of take a little more care and be like, Hey man, like let's, how about we do this? How about we, you know, I said, what if like take somebody I really, really care about, like uh, my sister, for instance. Now let's say my sister is in the same situation I'm in right now. Okay. Now let's look at that and, and, and tell me what you would tell her. What would, what would you say to her? Say, well, Hey, first thing is like, Jesus, um, you know, it's not people make mistakes, you know, and you, you, you look at it from a step out of yourself and then project that back onto somebody you care about instead of staying within and just beating the shit out of yourself. When I started to, to do that, I realized like, okay, well, this is a better, like, this is a, a better strategy. I have to, I have to kind of treat myself as if I do give a shit about myself. Right. So yeah. by, by doing that, uh, by kind of stepping outside of myself and, uh, almost like, I guess how you would, 
is like uh, parenting yourself or something, right? <laughs> um, so by doing that, I was able to kind of to get sort of a a process started where I'd be like, okay, well, you know what? We're gonna just we're not gonna we're not gonna ruminate on that for now. We're gonna we're gonna deal with this other little thing that we got going, and we're gonna here's what we're gonna do. Here's the plan, and we got tiny little steps that we're gonna try and do each day that are gonna put us on a better kind of road towards a healthier cultivation of that inner dialogue. And that's all we're going to do. We're just going to keep working on that. And it's going to take time. Just time is, you know, that's, that's what we got. That's what we're going to use. And it's going to be hard. Yeah, it's going to be hard, but we're going to, it's possible, you know, and once you start, because you can't, I mean, you wouldn't say that to somebody you care about. You wouldn't be like, hey, this is impossible, you idiot. <laughs> you know, no, look what you've no. done. You know, that's not how you would uh, that's not how you would help that person. So why on earth would you do that to yourself? You know, it's uh, it's when I once I made that kind of connection that I ha- I couldn't treat myself that way, uh, then I was able to give myself enough time and space to to do a better job of of advocating. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That that um, and then I, I, the thing I, that came to mind for me was that as you were doing that, you were also developing skills of coping. In that, okay, when I am feeling at my worst, here's something I can do. I can go meditate. I can exercise. I can read. I can distract. I don't think there's anything wrong with with uh, healthy distraction to to teach ourselves the ability of uh, to get through those moments. No, it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. And, and not, I, I think, you know, not every single moment, and this is where, you know, recovery burnout can be a real thing that um, there are moments where you have to really put pen to paper, sometimes literally and, and figure it out. And then there are also moments where you have to just get through them Yeah, and come out the other side of them. And then you can say, wow, I, I came out the other side of that. And yeah. I, and I changed my thinking or I didn't resort to an unhealthy behavior. I didn't use a a substance. Um, I reached out maybe, Um, you know, this would be, this is what a healthy, mentally healthy person does. They, (laughs) (laughs) they process stuff as it comes along in a way that doesn't derail them. They're able to, you know, take hits and keep coming forward. That's, that's the key. Yeah, that's right. I, and, and reaching out has been another thing for me of how to, how to manage all these things about my personality that is to allow myself, afford myself the opportunity to um, let people know who I am. And every single person in my life who I've let know who I am has said, God, we're so much happier to know this guy um, than the guy who is like secretive and and uh, self-isolating and um, withdrawn, you know, and even, and, and the good with the bad. And again, I know that I, and we are very, very fortunate to have a a very healthy circle of people around us, but um, taking that risk of putting ourselves out there. And that could, again, that could, for some people that is groups and um, uh, recovery groups or, or team activities or whatever that may be. But um, every time that we do that, we're, it's establishing a healthy pattern. I think, you know? Yeah, I believe so. 
I mean, the way I look at it is, uh, you know, this is, uh, if I'm coming at you with uh, my greatest assemblance of an authentic Nathan <laughs> and you don't like it, then I don't, you know, that's, that's okay. But, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to be friends or whatever. That's not a, that's not a big deal. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's kind of an important realization too. Like just because, um, you know, if you're a person who's comfortable with uh, talking about this stuff or whatever, I mean, some people aren't, you know, and, and some people are going to react uh, poorly to that and they're going to, there's going to be a, an automatic stigma attached to, uh, to, to you as an individual. And, and like, I mean, that's that person's issue, you know? So yeah, I, I, the way I look at it is uh, the same way you do. I think it's the more that you can, you know, if I can be, my main focus is to be honest with myself and that's, that's the, the absolute priority. And then uh, honest with other people, after that for sure yeah. for sure and it sounds so easy when we're saying it and uh w- while you're doing it you're in the middle of of the trenches um but it, it yeah it sure it sure helps yes sir so i think that's uh that's about it for this topic hey yeah much, yeah i think we did an okay job of uh looking at those things um yeah, there's quite a bit there, and there's some interesting stuff. If anyone has any questions and want to get a hold of us again, uh, it's us at recoverymachine.org. That's us at recoverymachine.org. Shoot us an email um, or get a hold of us via Spotify or YouTube, and uh, we'd be happy to discuss any of this stuff with you. So, yeah, absolutely. Should we leave it there? We'll leave it there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as we said last time, thanks to everyone who's, uh, who's tuning in and listening with us and hopefully it sparks conversations within people's homes, within workplaces. And, um, and if, if there's anyone out there who's listening and, and, and struggling right now, maybe it's of some help. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think, um, as we said earlier, there are, uh, there were so far this year, there've been 17, 182 deaths in our province from overdose. Um, and that's far too many. And there's just countless lives that are impacted. So I think at the very least to be having this kind of a conversation about the experience and about, um, about ways out. Um, let's keep the conversation going. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Information is key. Yeah. All right, Corey. We will talk next time. And uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Yeah. Thanks guys. See you soon.